listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. Well, brothers and sisters, would you open your Bibles up to the book of 1 Samuel? We get to continue on in this series, and we're going to be in chapter 18 and chapter 19 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Let's give our attention to God's good word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Mireb. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. 
And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he, may be ava- that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And David gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw that Saul and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. He and Samuel went and lived at Naioth, and it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. 
When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Sikhu. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah, And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning, and we count it our great joy to read and listen to your word. And so we ask this morning that you would accomplish much with your word. We stand in desperate need of it, and so we ask, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word now? Amen. Let's start with these words. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. I will sing of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So these words, they come from Psalm 59, and as we think about these words from Psalm 59, they reveal a deep and profound confidence in God. The psalmist says what? He says, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. You have been to me a fortress and a refuge. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. And not only do these words in Psalm 59 reveal a a deep and profound confidence in God, these words reveal a, a deep understanding of God. The man who wrote these words knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was for him and that God would never turn away from him or let him fail or let him falter. And so we know from this morning already who wrote these words. David wrote these words and we know the circumstances about which David wrote these words. The superscript tells us when when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And what we need to do right at the beginning of this sermon is connect a few dots. So the words of David in Psalm 59 are about the events that we just read about in chapter 18 and chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. And so think about it like this. As David sat there reflecting upon all that happened to him in the house of Saul and all that Saul did to him as Saul planned against him trying to murder him, David arrived at this conclusion. Yahweh is for me. The Lord is for me. And this is an important connection to make because this connection cuts a clear path for us through these two chapters in 1 Samuel. And we need this clear path because as we think about the two chapters we just read, there's a lot going on in them. There's new friendships being formed. There's all of this palace intrigue going on. There's devious plots being planned. There's attempted murder. There's desperate escapes. There's close calls. And it's easy in the midst of all of this action, all of these new things, to get a bit lost and a bit confused. 
But this connection, this connection between Psalm 59 and these two chapters points us to the great truth that governs these two chapters and all the events in them. And the truth is so simple. The Lord is for his anointed. The Lord is for David. So the plan this morning for these two chapters consists of two parts. In part one... We're going to do a summary of chapters 18 and 19, and this is going to be a bit like flying a plane at at 10,000 feet. We're going to sacrifice detail for an overview so that we might see all that's going on. And the goal is to see how these two chapters revolve around the purpose of the Lord for his anointed. We want to see in the text that Yahweh is for David. And then from part one, we'll move into part two, and part two will be a solid dose of application. If the Lord is for his anointed, if the Lord is for David, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for all of us as God's people? How should we respond to this truth? So let's start with a summary of chapter 18, chapter 19, with an eye to see that the Lord is for David, the Lord is for his anointed. So, we pick up the story, and we pick up the story right after David's great victory over Goliath. And David's great victory over Goliath is the fundamental changing point in David's life. Before this battle, David was just a a shepherd and a musician from Bethlehem. He was just the youngest son of Jesse. He was unknown in the land of Israel. He was the Lord's anointed, but no one knew that. He was just another man among many other men in Israel. But this event, when he killed Goliath, launched him onto the scene. And what chapters 18 and 19 do is they chronicle the many changes that take place in David's life because of this great victory. And so what we see in these two chapters is the rise of David. He is going somewhere. And David's rise can be described in three words. Love success, and popularity. First word, we see it in the text. David is loved. And this is fitting because what does David's name mean? Well, it means beloved, the one who is loved. And so as we read through these two chapters, we find loving, we find love coming at David from all sorts of directions. It comes from the the powerful within the land of Israel. We find Jonathan, the son of Saul, loving David. Chapter 18, verse 1, we find these moving words. The text says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Love also comes from the masses. As the people of God watch David, as they observe David's life and all that David is doing, what do they do? Their hearts are inclined toward him. Chapter 18, verse 16, All Israel and Judah loved David. And there's even romantic love in these two chapters. Saul's daughter, Michael, as the text says, chapter 18, verse 20, loved David. And this is interesting because this is the the only woman in the Old Testament who's explicitly said to love a man. Michael loved David. We find a second word as well, and that's success. So David is one of those guys that, that you want to have on your side, and you want him on your side because wherever he goes, he has success. Chapter 18, verse 5 puts it like this, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. 
Chapter 18, verse 14 puts more on this. It says, David had success in all his undertakings. Go down to chapter 18, verse 30. This continues the theme. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of David. And so David is a man of success. Wherever he goes, good things happen. And because of all of this success, David climbs the ladder of power within Israel. It just happens. Saul places him over the men of war, chapter 18, verse 5. He leads the armies of Israel into battle, chapter 18, verse 16. In fact, he becomes the face of Israel's military. So we've got love, we've got success, and then we have popularity. Because of all of this, David becomes extremely popular within Israel. So popular, in fact, that we get one of the songs that the women of Israel used to sing about David. Chapter 18, verse 7. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so in these three words, we see the, the rise of David. He is loved. He finds success. He has popularity among the people. But all of this doesn't make everyone happy in Israel. There is one man who is not happy about David. There is one man who, who considers the life of David and all that's going on in the life of David. He watches David's success. He observes Israel's love for him. And he grows angry and frustrated. We see it in the text. The women sing about David, but what happens to Saul? He grows envious. The people love David, but, but Saul fears David. David finds success, but all that Saul can do is worry about his own hold on the kingdom. And so we see Saul in these two chapters. He's angry, he's anxious, he's envious, he's afraid. There's this potent mixture of evil in his soul. And what does it produce? Chapter 18, verse 29. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And as we work through these two chapters, Saul plays the part of an enemy right to the T. Three times Saul tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. And when outright violence doesn't work, doesn't get the job done, Saul resorts to planning and cunning and trickery. So Saul dangles his, his daughter Michael before David. Saul's thinking perhaps this, this woman will undo him. And so he, he puts this proposition before David. Here's the bride price, 100 Philistine foreskins. And Saul's plans and traps don't stop there. Saul begins to recruit ranking officials and soldiers within the upper echelons of Israelite society to go and murder David. At one point, he sends spies to lie in wait at David's door to capture him in his own house. And finally, at the end of the chapter... Chapter 19, Saul himself heads off to kill David with his own bare hands. But here's the thing. Nothing that Saul tries works. It's almost like those old cartoons, Tom and Jerry and Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner. You have these devious animals and they're trying to, to kill the other animal and they just try and they try and try and the harder they try, the worse it gets for them because nothing they do works out. Well, that's Saul here. The harder Saul tries to kill David, the worse it gets for Saul. Saul throws his spear at David, but somehow, someway, David eludes the spear three times. Saul sends David into a Philistine, Philistine 
trap, but, but somehow, someway, David comes out not just with the bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins, he comes out with, with the bride price times two, 200 Philistine foreskins. All of Saul's plots are, are thwarted, and they're thwarted by his own flesh and blood. Jonathan puts a kibosh on the first conspiracy. He talks his father out of it. And with spies at the door ready to, to capture David and haul him off to Saul for, for death, there's Michael. And she plans the escape of David. And as we observe all that happens in chapter 18 and chapter 19, we ask as readers, how is this possible? How are all of these things possible? And as we think about it, certainly we can say a few of these things can be just explained away. Certainly a few of these things can just be attributed to luck or being at the right place or at the right time. But when you look at chapter 18 and 19 as a whole, we begin to beg for a better answer. There has to be something more going on here. David continually prospers and succeeds. David rises and gains. He is, he is moving up. He is loved. He is popular. And even when the most powerful man in the whole country of Israel stands opposed to him, he continues on his upward journey. No one can stop David, it seems. So we ask, well, what's the answer? Well, we just have to look at the text. Chapter 18, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Chapter 18, verse 14. David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. Chapter 18, verse 28, 29. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. We found our answer. All of David's success, all of David's prosperity, the reason why David escaped from Saul time and time again must be traced back to this fundamental truth. Yahweh is for David. Yahweh is for his anointed. And what this story does, these two chapters do, is it, it placards the truth right in front of us. We see it taking place. What is the Lord doing? He is melting the hearts of Israel. The Lord is bending history. The Lord is defeating enemies. The Lord is confusing opponents, all for the sake of David. What is the text telling us? The text is telling us this great truth. The Lord is for his anointed. So there's our summary of chapter 18 and chapter 19. So we've worked through it rather quickly at 10,000 feet. We can see what's going on and we see how all of these things are related to the theme that the Lord is for his anointing. The Lord is for David. So now we can turn our attention to the matter of application. What does this mean for us? If the Lord is for his anointed, how does that truth come to bear upon our own lives? And so these two chapters as we consider them, give us three precious gifts. Three precious gifts from these two chapters. And that'll be our application. So the first gift we get from these two chapters is the gift of insight. So as we think about chapter 18 and chapter 19, in one way we could say it's, it's a bit chaotic. There's all of these things happening. David is growing, but then, then Saul is in the background plotting and trying to kill David. It's just, it seems chaotic, and, and chaos is a fitting word for us to meditate on. Chaos involves disorder, disarray, disorganization, confusion. 
And if we take stock of our own lives for a moment, we see chaos everywhere. We see it in the news. There's nation rising against nation. We see it in our own land. We see God's laws turned upside down, inside out. We see chaos in our own lives. Chaos just intrudes in upon us. Death shows up. Sickness is there. Trouble and broken relationships are everywhere. But in the midst of all of this chaos, these two chapters give us this precious gift. They give us insight. Because these two chapters allow us to look through all the chaos happening in the world, in our country, in our own lives, and see God's unchanging purpose, God's unchanging resolve. These two chapters allow us to see this great truth. God is for his anointed. This needs to be put in the the plainest of possible terms for us because it is so important. It's a life-changing truth. God is for his Messiah. God is for Jesus. And we can just work away at this for a moment. We can just do a bit of reasoning. If God so worked for David in chapter 18 and 19 prospering David, advancing David, protecting David, how much more will God work for his very own son, the Lord Jesus Christ? If God did that for David back in history, how much more will God do, even in this present day, for his son, the anointed one, Jesus? What this text is doing is giving us insight We can be sure that the Lord, even in this present day, even in this moment, is working for the prosperity of Jesus Christ, for the advancement of Jesus, for the great glory of his Son. In fact, this is the very matter that's taken up and proclaimed in the pages of the New Testament. You can turn almost everywhere and you see this theme that God is for Jesus. One example is Colossians chapter 1. Paul gives us this hymn about Jesus, and he says this. He is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is Paul doing? Well, he's spreading his arms wide, and he's he's grabbing absolutely everything. He reaches to creation. He reaches to new creation. And he says, it's all for the prosperity of Jesus Christ. Paul says, look at creation. Everything was created through Jesus, and ultimately everything was created for Jesus. Then Paul says, look at redemption, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the the, the church, this new humanity. What is it all about? It is about the preeminence of Jesus in everything. And what is Paul saying to us? He is saying, God is for Jesus, that Jesus might have the first place in absolutely everything. He's saying, in many ways, the same thing we just saw in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, but in a much more articulate way. And as we meditate on all of this, a glorious truth stares us in the face. Because God is for Jesus, Jesus cannot be defeated. 
Because God is for Jesus. Jesus cannot be thwarted. It doesn't matter if the most powerful man in the whole land plots and plans against him. It doesn't matter if the whole world comes together in a league, in a pact to overthrow King Jesus. Because God is for him. He will succeed and he will have the first place in everything. And we meet precious good news, don't we? Here's the good news. In this present moment, the Lord is melting hearts. In this present moment, the Lord is bending history. In this present moment, the Lord is defeating enemies and confusing vicious opponents, all for the sake of Jesus Christ, that he might have the first place in absolutely everything. What does this do to us? It gives us insight. It changes the way we deal with the world. When you watch the news, when you meditate on all the things that are happening in your life, what do we get to say as Christians? We get to say, God is for his anointed. Jesus Christ is going to have the first place in absolutely everything. We can apply that to the, to the big things like war. Jesus is going to have preeminence here. We can apply it to the very small things in our life like, like sickness and, and suffering. God is going to have the first place here. We get this gift of insight. God is for his Messiah. That's the first gift. The second gift is the gift of faith. So at the beginning of chapter 18, we find this story. Jonathan and David, they, they meet. And in this meeting, we find the gift, the gift of faith. Jonathan here instructs us how we are to respond to the truth that the Lord is for his anointed. So what does Jonathan do at the beginning of chapter 18? Well, the first thing that Jonathan does is this. He, he loves David. So Jonathan has observed David. He, he watched David go into battle and defeat Goliath. He, he, he observed David's faith. He heard David's words. And Jonathan's heart was moved towards David. Verse 1, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Second thing that Jonathan does is he, he makes a covenant with David. And so this love of Jonathan is no fleeting emotion. It's just not mere admiration. Well, that's a really good guy. I think I, I like him. I want his autograph. No, Jonathan binds himself to David and David's cause. This is an arrangement of relationship. And third, Jonathan humbles himself before David. What does Jonathan do? He takes off his royal garments, he takes off his armor, his weapons, and he gives them to David. Verse 4, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And this whole scene is worthy of our meditation. And as we meditate on it, it, it should strike us as very unusual. We have to remember who this Jonathan fellow is. Who is this guy? He's, he's a man of renown in Israel. He was a praised and skilled warrior. We've already heard some of the great stories about Jonathan, how he went down that, that slope called Slippery and how he went up the other slope called, called Thorny and how he battled the Philistines. This is a great man. Not only is he a great man, but he is an older man. David and Jonathan are not contemporaries. Jonathan is probably some 30 years older than David, old enough to be David's father. And most importantly, Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel. 
Jonathan was the man standing in line next to Saul for the throne. He was the next man up to bat. Here's Jonathan. What does he do? Does he grasp after power? Does he fear David and David's popularity with the people? Does he become anxious about his own royal position? Does he plot and plan and try to murder David? Well, we would say that's only natural. That's the way our hearts are wired with sin. Self-preservation. Self-focus. Self-centeredness. I want what I want. But here is Jonathan. What does he do? He loved David. And not only did he love David, but he bound himself to David in a covenant. And then this should shock us. Here is the crown prince of Israel, and he humbles himself before David. He strips himself of his royal dignity, and in essence, he hands over his share in the kingdom to David. Here is my royal cloak. Here are all my weapons and my armor. They are yours, David. You see the precious gift. Jonathan shows us faith. Jonathan met the Lord's anointed, and Jonathan could perceive the Lord's purpose for David. So so Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and he bound him to his cause, and he humbled himself before the Messiah. This is a precious gift for us, because what Jonathan does is he opens up the way of faith for us. Jonathan's story is bidding us this morning to take concrete steps of action towards Jesus. What is the text telling us? It's saying this, dear reader, you must love Jesus. You must love Jesus. Not only must you love Jesus, but you must go to Jesus and you must make a pact with Jesus. Just as Jonathan bound himself to, to, to David in this ordered relationship, you too must bind yourself to King Jesus in an ordered relationship. And it doesn't stop there. Jonathan humbled himself before the Messiah. Jonathan gave his share in the kingdom. While we don't have a kingdom to give, what do we do? We relinquish our lives to King Jesus. We bend our knee and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so we get this precious gift in the life of Jonathan. He leads us in faith. This brings us to the last gift that this text gives us. The last gift is a warning. We often don't think of gifts as warnings, do we? But they are gifts. In fact, they're one of the most precious gifts that God can can give to us because in a warning, he, He is calling us back from danger and peril. And if we're faithful and if we listen to God's warnings, God's warnings save us from all sorts of trouble and harm. And so we've been following Saul's life for a period of time. And so we know a few things about Saul. We know that Saul was called to be king over Israel, the first king. But as we followed Saul's story, we saw that Saul was disobedient to the word of God. He refused to listen to God's word. And because he refused to listen to God's word, he was rejected as king. And there's nothing Saul could do to get his kingship back. We also remember that he was told by Samuel that he would be replaced by another man, a better man, a man of God's own choice. So in the passage, the better man appears. David shows up, the Lord's anointed, and he is before Saul. And so what does Saul do? Does he follow the example of his son, Jonathan? Does he love David as his own soul? Does he bind himself to David's cause and covenant? Does he humble himself before David and hand over his kingdom to him? Well, the answer is no. 
here's the thing. That's exactly what Saul should have done. If Saul was going to walk in faith and repentance, he would have humbled himself before David and worked to prosper David in everything. What does Saul do? He resists David. He fights against David. He's fighting against the kingdom of God. And so we ask as readers, well, what does this mean for Saul? And we can even broaden that out. What does that mean for those who resist the Lord's anointed? Well, let's go to the end of chapter 19. There's been some sort of reconciliation, a temporary reconciliation between David and Saul through Jonathan. But that reconciliation doesn't last very long because Saul grabs his spear again and tries to pin David to the wall. And and in the midst of all this, David finally flees. He escapes with the help of Michael. And then we come to the scene. David flees to Samuel. And Saul learns of this, and he sends men after David. And, and something odd happens at this point. Saul's men, all of them, fail in their mission. And they fail because the Spirit of God takes control of them and puts these men into a state of frenzy and madness. And this happens three times. And after the third time, Saul's had enough of this. He sends men, they begin to prophesy, which means they're in this frenzy, in this state of frenzy and madness. And Saul says, okay, if I'm gonna, something's going to happen here, I've got to do this myself. So we go to verse 23, verse 24 of chapter 19, and it says this. He went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And, he, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it was said, is Saul also among the prophets? So we ask, well, what happens to Saul here? What does this mean? He's resisting the Lord. He's resisting David. He's resisting the Messiah. What does this mean? We have to pay close attention to the text here. So Saul, just like his servants, is incapacitated by the Spirit. So so the Spirit puts Saul in the state of of frenzy and madness. And not only does the the Spirit put Saul in the state of of, of madness, but the Spirit causes Saul to, to strip off his clothes and lay naked all day and night. That seems really strange to us as readers. What does this mean? Well, if we key in on this word strip, it makes sense of all that's going on here. Because this word has already been used in our two chapters. If you go back to chapter 18, verse 4, what did Jonathan do? He willingly stripped himself of his kingly regalia and gave it to David. Jonathan stripped himself of his armor, his cloak, his weapons. But here we see that Saul has refused the Messiah. He's been fighting against the Messiah. So what does the Lord do to this resistor? Well, the Spirit of God forces Saul into subjection to the Messiah. The Spirit effectively strips Saul of his clothes, his his kingly garments, his kingly armor, his kingly weapons. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit openly shames Saul before the watching eye of Israel. Jonathan Faith stripped himself of his kingly regalia to David, but Saul refused, and because he refused, what happens? Well, the Spirit of God humbled Saul and caused Saul to be humiliated. There's a warning here. Don't you see it? It is futile to resist the Messiah. 
If God is for the Messiah, all efforts to resist him are in vain. You can throw your spear at him. You can lay a trap against him. You can hunt after him. But it will all come to nothing because God is for his Messiah. There's a cold, hard truth at work in this text. If you resist the Messiah and if you continue to resist him, never giving up, never giving in, there is a coming day when God himself will draw near and humble you. If you do not humble yourself before the Messiah, God will humble you before the Messiah. And in the public nakedness of Saul, we just get a small impartial glimpse of of what God will soon do in this whole world. He will humble and humiliate all of those who resist his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, the text of Scripture is before us and it proclaims this, this simple glorious truth. God is for his Messiah. God is for Jesus. And from that, we get these gifts. We get insights. God is for Jesus. And we get to look at the world differently because Jesus is going to be preeminent in all things. We get the gift of faith. We're called to be like Jonathan. Humble yourself before the Messiah. Love the Messiah. Love the Messiah. Make a pact with the Messiah. And last of all, we get this warning. If you resist the Messiah, God will resist you and ultimately humble you just as he humbled Saul. And so the call is this morning, receive the truth and take these gifts to heart and use them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word, how it teaches us, It instructs us and changes us. And we pray now, put this word to good use in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.